and welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Welcome, welcome. If you're new here, welcome. We've got some guests that we're going to get to meet later on this morning. But uh, you can open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. We're going to continue on in that chapter as we explore the significance of this new covenant that God has uh, made, <clears throat> that God made with Abram and, and himself that we call the new covenant. Uh, and while you're turning there, I, I want you to know that each time I get up here, I feel the awesome responsibility of, of the opportunity that is, is here, that I have. Uh, each week I spend my, my time studying a, a, a particular passage. Sometimes it's a whole chapter, sometimes just a few verses. And I, I study that trying to understand the significance of why our father included that in his word and trying to understand uh, his purpose and what his, his, what his point is in all that. Um, trying to understand the original meaning, uh, how it was understood at the time, but then more importantly, even how does that apply to us today? And, uh, and then, then I take all that information and I try to craft a, a message, try to present it to you in a way that number, number one, hopefully you don't fall asleep. Uh, and number two, and more importantly, that the word you hear, a little bit must be the hair, yeah. Mixing up the uh, the reception. I'm not sure what what be going on there, but we'll put it down here. See if that helps. All right. Um, but more importantly, my hope is that the words you hear are not just knowledge, not just information, not even wisdom, but they be words of life, words of grace, words of power uh, that hopefully ultimately leads you to experience a greater trust in him. But that's not even the most nerve wracking part of all of it. You know, public speaking and all that aside, the most nerve wracking part is the fear of what if, what if I'm wrong? What if I misinterpreted the passage? See, it's one thing for me to, to study the word and come to conclusions and be wrong, but to then lead you astray is even more terrifying. That's the stuff of nightmares. Uh, the last thing I want to do is misrepresent my father in any way. And so uh, no wonder Paul rhetorically asks in 2 Corinthians 2, who is adequate for such things? And the answer is no one. And yet he chooses us. He chooses you and I to have those kinds of opportunities. And so with all that in mind, you know, it's why I don't get up here and just share my opinion. Why we don't, we don't take on, you know, give you my take on how the, the world is broken and how to fix it, right? Get into the politics and so forth. Because quite frankly, my opinion is as equal as your opinion, but that's not what we're after. We're after our father's opinion, what he says. And so if you think about, you know, a couple of years ago when COVID was going on and the lockdowns were, were happening, we, we as a church, the elders were getting, you know, people presenting to us from all kinds of sides of the, the political spectrum about what we should talk about. We should talk about the importance of, of following authority and following the, the laws of the land and, and why we should be wearing masks and, and why we need to be encouraging other people to do that more. And then we're getting on the other side, well, you, we need to talk about individual freedom and, and that's love and, and why we shouldn't be wearing masks and all kinds of stuff going back and forth. And, and the reality is that really wasn't value. It wasn't life-giving. And so that's not what we are wanting to do. We are wanting to offer life to people. So we're trying to stay on mission, offering the, the gospel. It says in Proverbs 18, 21, that, that life and death is in the power of the tongue. And so what either I'm going to offer you my opinion, which would be words of death and discouragement, or I could offer to you father's word, which will hopefully be life. Now I say all that because where we are in our study here of, of the life of Abram, it's, it's colliding now with what's going on in the world around us. And, and that really shouldn't surprise us because the reality is the God's central theme is redemption and his word speaks to what's going on today. 
right? His word speaks about what was, what is, and what is to come. And, and so it's not surprising. But what that means is we're going to edge into the realm of politics a little bit. And we're going to talk about things like what's going on right now between Israel and Hamas war and the Gaza Strip. And does the church have a stake in all this? We're going to talk about what the new covenant means for Israel today. And, uh, and what's Israel's connection to the church today? And most importantly, and, and maybe the most controversial, and I don't know if we'll get to it today, but what does this mean for the old covenant? So with that as our introduction, uh, hopefully we don't have too much static. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we're excited about what you have in store for us this morning. And beyond knowledge, beyond information, most certainly beyond politics, Lord, would you speak life to us? Would you, would you encourage us and help us to understand the significance of, of what you're offering to us and what it means to now have life in you and you alone? In your name we pray, amen. All right, let me read to you in, uh, in Genesis 15, beginning in verse 18. So on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I, will, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Katamonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, and the Raphaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Well, what does that all mean, right? So what he's done here is he's given a promise that this land is going to go to Abram's descendants. And who are those descendants? Ultimately, it's going to be the nation of Israel. We see that, right? And so God's telling Abram the boundaries of this. And on the Western boundary, it starts with the river Egypt. Now, some have understood that as being the Nile, uh, and it could be, but it's more likely it's a, it's a river that's west of the Nile called the, the Wadi, right? It's a, it's a little brook, and, and it, it goes as far, though, uh, east as the river Euphrates, Euphrates River. And that's the border of Mesopotamia. You remember Abram, he crossed the Euphrates River, exited Mesopotamia and entering into, into Canaan. Well, if we were to just take that as the, as the two boundaries, I'm losing patience on this one. All right, we're just gonna switch. We're just gonna switch over here. Excellent. All right, so we could understood that as, as these two boundaries. One on the the this wadi, this brook is on the east and then the Euphrates is on the right. And if you were to kind of imagine just going straight across, that's a massive piece of land. It includes all of what we know as modern day Israel, but it would also include Lebanon. It would include Syria, Jordan, parts of, of Iraq, uh, Saudi Arabia. It would be massive. Now, the reality is though, in Numbers 34, you're seeing here a map. God has actually given other dimensions or other borders of this. And so it's a little bit difficult to see here on this, on this map here. But uh, what they're showing on the map here is actually modern aid Israel along with what God promised, right? So there's some different colors. So the, kind of mapping it out here, the, the green there. So you can see there's the Gaza Strip right here towards the, the, the bottom on the left there. That's the Gaza Strip. That's where the war is going on right now. Uh, and then you got the West Bank, which is more kind of central into Israel. And then north, the green part there is the Golan Heights. So, so those are areas or territories that are uh, not so much disputed, although the Golan Heights have some dispute, but that's the territory that right now is controlled by the, the Palestinians. Uh, and then you have the, that purple area, that shade, that's disputed land between Israel and, and, uh, and Palestine, but it is right now under the control of Israel. And then you have the darkest pink, and that is modern-day Israel as well. But then you see a lighter pink. And so that's all that to the, to the south there. And you see there's that river that God had, had given as their eastern boundary. And then all up along here on the north and on the west, into Jordan, into Lebanon, into Syria, and so forth. That's all the land that God promised Moses, which likely was the land that he promised Abraham as well. Now, here's what's significant. Israel never possessed all of that land. Not once, not for, not for a brief moment did they possess all of that land. And that, that's what's interesting because yet he promised that to him. In fact, in, in Joshua 1.3, God says, Joshua, wherever you put your foot, that land's yours. Just start walking. 
Name it and claim it. It's yours. He's got it. That's simply all they needed to do. But they didn't. They came up short. And so at the end of Judges chapter 1, beginning of verse 27, we see a list there of how Israel failed to take out certain nations and certain tribes and claim land. And all of these nations stayed behind. And so then in Judges chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, now, the angel of the Lord, that's, that's Jesus, essentially. In the Old Testament, whenever you see the angel of the Lord, chances are that's Jesus. Now, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I have brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land which I had sworn to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and led you into the land which I had sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars but you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but you, they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bacham, which means weeping. And they sacrificed the Lord. And so because of their, their disobedience, because of their unwillingness to take full possession of the land, God says, then you're not going to be stuck with them. They're going to be there, but they're going to be a trap for you. They're going to be a snare to you. They're going to cause problems to you. And you think about the rest of the Old Testament, in many ways, is a fulfillment of that, that prophecy. Whether they're battling with the Philistines or whether they're, they're engaging in the worship of all these other gods, because of that failure. And, and I think there's a, there's a reminder, a solemn reminder there for us that, that while there's grace, there's forgiveness and there's love and there's acceptance that God is never going to break his covenant. He's never going to turn his back on us. There are still consequences to our disobedience and significant consequences as we see here in the life of Israel. So you might be thinking, oh, Israel, you foolish people, why did you not just take God at his word? Why did you not just start marching and name it and claim it like Joshua was told? Why, why did you stop short? Or maybe, maybe you read through this, the rest of the Old Testament, you read about the foolish kings they had. And they go, oh, you, you fool, Solomon, what were you thinking? With all your wisdom, why were you worshiping all these false gods? Or some of the false prophets and their fears. And, and then you get to the New Testament, you got the disciples you know, arguing over who's going to be the greatest when Jesus is pouring out his heart about how he's going to die. And you think, you foolish disciples. Or foolish Corinthians. Remember going through the, the letter to the Corinthians and seeing all their mistakes. Or foolish Galatians. Foolish churches. And I used to kind of look down my nose at them and go, oh, you fools. And then I started to look in the mirror and go, oh, you know what? I'm a good-looking fool. Um, Is think about the, the God of the universe. He's sworn a covenant to look after you. He's promised to give his life for you. He did. And he loves you. We sang about that love. We, we, we encourage you to own that belovedness. And yet, so many of us, myself included, stress over things that are so small. We worry about money. We worry about reputation and what others think about us. We worry about our future and, and, and what maybe our retirement or what a job, or what a career would look like. Or, or we worry about, you know, interest rates and mortgages and, and we worry about cost of avocados and all kinds of things, right? And we stress over things that are so small. And you know how you can judge something, whether it's small or not? Will it still be around in 100, 200, 300 years? Because a thousand years is just a pittance compared to God. It's not eternal. And yet that's where we so often find ourselves stressing in rather than trusting this God of the universe. And so hopefully we're willing to let go of control. We're, letting, we're willing to let go of trying to make things the way we think they're supposed to be in this world. And we're willing to let God be God and trust him. All right, let's return now back to that covenant that God made with Abram. 
And, and specifically, I want to ask some questions about what it means for Israel today and what about the land, right? I mean, that's, that's what's going on over there right now and has been for a, a long time, as we're going to see, about the battle for this land. But also, what does this mean for us in the new covenant as a church? See, if, if the covenant that God made with Abram is in fact the new covenant, then does that not mean the land belongs to the church today? Is that what he's saying? Well, let's, let's kind of explore these, these questions. So one, one line of thinking is that, uh, and I've heard it from people, is that Israel, or sorry, the church is saved the way it is through Jesus, right? The, largely the Gentiles are saved through faith in Christ, but Israel as a nation is saved through their observance of the law. In essence, what they're saying is that the, the Israel is still under the old covenant and you and I are under a new covenant and these two covenants sit side by side and depending on how you want, you can get saved either way. Well, we know that's not true, right? In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way. I'm not a way, I'm the way. That's why it's, it's not good enough for, for Muslims just to follow the Quran or, or Buddhists to be good little Buddhists and, and Hindus to be good little Hindus or, or Jews to be good little Jews. It's not about that. There's only one way to the Father. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And if, if salvation could be another way, if it could be through your performance, if it could be through you following another faith, another religion, then quite frankly, Jesus' death was purposeless. Galatians 2, 2, verse 21, I don't think we have time to turn to it this morning, but let me read it to you. Paul writes, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness, remember this righteousness is this acceptance with God, if this acceptance with God comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. It's so important. He says it again in, in chapter, chapter 3, verse 18 of Galatians. For if the inheritance, right, this, this new covenant promise is based on law, it is no longer based on the promise. It's no longer based on the covenant, but God granted it to Abram by means of a promise. You see, quite frankly, if, if, the, if your righteousness, your acceptance could come through the law, then God would simply turn to you and I and say, try harder, do more and do better. Put your back into it. Get serious about it. And that would be the, the call. But you couldn't do it through, through the law. You couldn't do it through works. It had to be through the same way that Abram entered into this promise. Abram entered the covenant through faith. So that raises some more questions. So again, Galatians 3, 21 to 22. Is the law, that old covenant, is it contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which is able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It's not about what you do. It's not about your effort. It's not about measuring up to the standards. There's no standards around beyond this. Do you believe? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your savior? That's it. That's the only test. That's all it takes. And it's not a work. It's a choice we make. So we know that's not the case, that there's not these two competing covenants that are existing side by side. Well, then another line of thought is, well, that means that the church has replaced Israel. That Israel is no longer anyone special. They're not God's chosen people anymore. That designation belongs to the church. And so theologians have come up with a, a fancy word for it. It's called super secessionism. Super secessionism. They just love big words. You know, it literally just means to sit in the place of. I like the simple word. It's replacement theology. That's what it's called. I don't know why they have to come up with big, fancy, five-syllable words. Like, just keep it simple. So replacement theology is this thinking that the church has replaced Israel. And therefore, all of the promises that Israel was to receive ought to go to the church. And Israel is now nothing. Because of the rebellion, because of the, the rejection of God, that's not the case. And so now Israel is just like the Chinese. They're like the, the Persians, the Native Americans, Canadians, Americans, Europeans, and so forth. They're just a people group. 
And, and quite frankly, that kind of thinking has led to a lot of abuse and mistreatment of the Jews in the history of the church. But let me introduce a concept to you about how, how to understand Israel in the scripture, because there's a, there's a, a physical Israel, but there's also a spiritual Israel. Uh, turn with me if you got if you got your Bibles with you in Romans chapter nine, in verses six to eight. We're going to see these these this idea here of a physical and spiritual Israel. So, beginning in verse six, Paul writes, "But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants." but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise. That word again, promise means covenant, but the children of the covenant are regarded as descendants. So what he's saying here is that there is the, the, the spiritual children of Abraham, the spiritual Israel are the people who believe, which would include you and I. That's the church. But there's still a physical Israel. There's still a physical descendants that is um, the, the nation of Israel that are descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham. Now, again, you look at that verse alone and you say, well, it looks like it has replaced Israel, the church. That, that Israel now is gone, that all, everything belongs to, to the spiritual Israel, the church. But the reality is God is not yet done with physical Israel. Turn to Romans 11. This is worth reading. Romans 11, verses 1 to 5. And really, Romans 9, 10, 11 is all about Israel's position in the new covenant. And he says to them, I say then, God, God has not rejected his people, has he? Because that's what it sounds like. This replacement theology is that God's rejected Israel. They're nobody now. It's all about the church. That's it. Therefore, he's rejected Israel. And so Paul's asking the question, is that what's happened? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. Remember that story in the Old Testament? God, Elijah's crying out to God. God, I'm the only person in the whole world that still trusts you. Everyone else fails you, but not me. I'm the only person. And what was God's answer? Take a moment. <laughs> Relax. It's okay, Elijah, right? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone. There's thousands of other people. In the same way, then, there's also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. See, God's not done with physical Israel. He's still got plans. We're going to see that more. So I don't think replacement theology is the right term for it. It's most certainly not this super secessionism where we're sitting in the place of Israel. I think a better understanding is the new covenant, the church, is the fulfillment of what God always intended. It's just the, it's the next logical step. It was the fulfillment of all that. Again, remember in our, in our study in Genesis 12, right? Where, where God called Abram at the beginning. In those first three verses, he, he gave him the blessing. And the blessing was that many nations will be blessed through you. It was never about creating one nation. It was never about everyone joining the nation of Israel. It was that through Israel, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so God's plan, God's intention was always to take it worldwide. It was always about taking it to everyone. And that's why you and I, being Gentiles of all kinds of different backgrounds, right? Whether you're, you've been in Canada for hundreds of years or whether you're from Europe or you're from Russia or South Africa or, or, or uh, Asia or Japan or Guam, wherever that is, like wherever you are from, it doesn't matter. Because our entry is not based on your physical birth. It's not based on your nationhood. It's based on the individual choice of placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we entered into this promise, this covenant. Well, if it's a fulfillment then, is the church then now the possessors of this land promise? 
Does does the church then have right to the Middle East? That'd be fun, right? I mean, there's not enough people fighting over it. Let's get the church involved. That will solve all the problems. Well, the short answer is no, and, and here's why. In Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 10, the writer writes this. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, right? So again, he was in Mesopotamia, in Ur at the time, and he's called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. This is the promised land. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. And we talked about how he's, for the, his whole life, Abram lived in tents. The last time he lived in a, in a, in a proper building, in a proper shelter was in Haran, which was on the outside of, of Canaan. But his whole life, he lived in tents outside the cities. He was a sojourner, right? He was come from afar. He never had true um, possession of land. He lived as an alien in the land of a promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has its foundations, whose architect and builder is God. At the risk of sounding like it's over-spiritualizing things, Abraham wasn't looking for real estate. Wasn't interested in land. Abram had one heart's desire, and it was God. That's who he was after. He was after the architect. He was after the, the one behind it all. And, and what's interesting was when you get now to, to the time of Jesus, Israel at the time is, is under Roman occupation. And all of Israel, they're waiting for the Messiah to come. And what do they think the Messiah will do? He'll raise up an army and he'll defeat the Romans and we will have the land again. And Israel will be a nation and we're going to have land. That's what they expected Jesus to do. But that was not Jesus' mission, right? That wasn't what it was about. God was about creating this kingdom of God, a spiritual kingdom, which is way bigger and more substantial than physical land and real estate. Think about what Paul says in Romans 14, 17. 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Right? It's not about the things of this world. Instead, the kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom he's establishing. And you and I could experience that anywhere. We could experience it in Israel, in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, in Moscow, in, in Cambridge, even the original Cambridge, which I'm told is on the other side of the water. I've, not, I've never heard of that one, but... but Anywhere we can experience the kingdom of God because that's what it's after. And that was what Abraham's after and that's what you and I are after. But again, the other key element of all this is God is not done with physical Israel. Romans eleven twenty five 25 talks about there being a partial hardening that is on their heart that will remain there until the fullness of the time of the Gentiles has come. Remember this, that, that the Jews is because of the Jews that we are, we're here today. I mean, all of the original disciples were Jewish. The, the, the early church was entirely Jewish. The guy at the head of it all is Jewish, right? And so we're, we're very much not anti-Jewish in any way, we're all for that. We're recognizing that that's our roots. But today, the church is largely Gentile. And, and quite frankly, it is because most of the Jews, not all, but most of the Jews have rejected the Messiah to our benefit. And I say that because if they didn't, then maybe Christianity is localized like a lot of faiths are in this world. Have you ever noticed that? that Islam is very much localized to a territory and the same with, with Buddhism and Hinduism and all these other isms and such. They tend to be localized, but Christianity's not worldwide. But today, again, the church is exclusively Gentile, but that's going to come for only for a time because there will be a time where that, that Gentiles, where they're coming, where we're coming to faith will end and that partial hardening will be removed from Israel. Let me, let me explain to you with two passages. 
One in the old, one in the new. The first one is in Ezekiel. And uh, we're going to look at Ezekiel 37. Now, I've, I've heard it described this way, that the book of Ezekiel is very much like a calendar, meaning that you can kind of go through and read through the book of Ezekiel and kind of see it in a chronological order, the different events that took place in the history of Israel. And what's interesting is when you get to chapter 36, which we're going to explore in a lot more detail in a few weeks, when you get to 36, it's the new covenant. It's right there. God says, I'm going, to make a, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. Remove your heart of stone and give you a new heart, a living heart. And I'm going to put my life inside you and I'm going to forgive you. It's, it's the new covenant in 36. It's beautiful. And then in 37, you have maybe the most famous passage in the book of Ezekiel. It's the vision of the dry bones. So here, God calls um, uh, Ezekiel to come to, to this valley and to, to speak over the valley, to preach over it. And, and so he's going he's gonna to do all that. And, and he sees this, in this valley all these dry bones, individual bones. And God says, prophesy over it. And so he does. He prophesies over it. And the bones all start to move and they come together. And then they, the flesh begins to form over them, the ligaments and the muscles and the skin. And, and the bodies are there, but they're still dead. They're dead bodies. And so God says, prophesy again a second time. So he does. He prophesies a second time. And suddenly now these dead bodies, life returns to them. The spirit returns to them. And the bodies become alive. That's the first 10 verses of Ezekiel 37. Thankfully, God's explained it for us. Leave no doubt. So there's no, I wonder this, I wonder that. No, no. He's going to tell us in verses 11 to 14 exactly what it means. He says, the bones are Israel. And they're scattered. There's going to be a time where we, we call them together and they will come together and they will form a body again. But there's no life in them. But then prophesy a second time and life will, will come. Well, to understand that, let me give you a bit of a history lesson. All right? Real quick. And I think it's important because, you know, reading the news and hearing from people today, we've forgotten our history. At the very least, we've become very narrow in our history, understanding of it. So if you go back to Abraham, it was around 2100 BC that Abraham crossed the, the Euphrates River from Mesopotamia into uh, the Canaan, into the Promised Land. Think about that. That's, that's 4,100 years ago that Abraham entered into that land. And then it was around 1400 BC that Joshua led the nation of Israel across the Jordan into the Canaan, into the promised land, where they went on a campaign and they conquered 31 different kings. That's 3,500 years ago, roughly. And they, they held that land to, uh, to about 722 BC. And then the northern tribes were captured by the Assyrians. Uh, 586 BC, so about 150 years later, Judea, the southern two tribes, they were finally captured by the Babylonians. And so now the Babylonians had command and control of that territory until they were defeated by the Persians. And now the Persians controlled Israel, or what we know as Israel today. And even when Israel was allowed to return and they rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple, they were still under Persian control. They still had all that authority there. And it remained that way until, until Alexander the Great came and he led his Greek army and they conquered Israel. They conquered the, the promised land. In fact, the Jews saw them as, as heroes because they were being set free from the Persians. And so they controlled that until then Alexander the Great died, not Ovechkin, just so we're clear. I know you're thinking that, but, but um, so Alexander the Great dies and now Rome begins to emerge and Rome succeeds Greece and, and now they control Israel. And that's the case when Jesus is born. They're under Roman rule. And Rome renames the area Palestine. That's where it started. Meaning who were the first Palestinians? They were the Jews. Now here's the thing. The word Palestine, the name for Palestine was an insult to the Jews. They're naming them after their probably greatest enemy, the Philistines. And so to call a Jew a Palestinian at that time would be akin today to calling someone from the Inuit from the north an Eskimo. It's an insult. See, Eskimo means fish eater. And that was what the Europeans called the people in the north. They called them this, this derogatory term Eskimo. 
and they're, they want to be called Inuit. So that's what we call them now. But this idea of Palestine is, is an imposed name put on this nation, put on these people. So one person wanted to say that Jesus was a Palestinian. Well, you could say that, but you've just slandered him based on the meaning of what a Palestinian is to a Jew. But Jesus was Jewish. Now, it stays that way. Um, and they're kind of working it out where Jews are there and they're living there until 70 AD when General Titus, who's soon going to become Emperor Titus, but at the time he's General Titus, comes in and he destroys Jerusalem. Utterly destroys it. Destroys the temple, everything. In fact, today you can see these massive boulders that had fallen off of the Temple Mount. And that's the original, or the second temple, I should say, that's been destroyed. And it's still there today. And that's all happened in 70 AD. Well, at that moment, most of the Jews scattered. Not all. Some remained in what is Israel today. But for the most part, they scattered. They went to Europe. Some went to Asia. Some went to the other parts of the Middle East. Some went to North Africa. They all kind of scattered as a result of what happened in 70 AD. And, and it kind of stays that way. And then the Byzantine Empire, which sort of took over from the Roman Empire, they now take control of the area around 600 AD. And then you get the Crusades, which has led to a number of great movies, by the way, right? I'm, I, I don't agree with the politics of it, but man, the movie's been great. But the Crusades lasted about 200 years from 1100 to 1300 AD. And, and you had the church going on and there are a number of Crusades going on. And at this point, Jerusalem and the Holy Land were going back and forth between Muslim control, Byzantine control, and, and Christian control. Sometimes the Crusades were successful and sometimes they failed until eventually they completely failed in around 1300 AD and the Catholic Church kind of gave up on it. Now, please understand the Catholic Church, their only interest in the land was selfish. They were interested in trade routes and in power and supporting emperors and so forth. They had no interest in returning the land to the Jews. They wanted the land for themselves. It wasn't until 1641 Sorry, 1621, when a British MP, Sir Henry Finch, was the first person to float the idea or to encourage the idea that the Jews should return back to Israel. And that, that was largely due to the Protestant Reformation going on because at the time, the, the, the reformers were all about going back to the scripture. And they're reading the scripture and they're reading Genesis and saying, well, wait a minute, God gave this land to Abram and his descendants. Well, those descendants are the Jews. They should go back to their land. 1621, and then nothing happens. Nothing really happens. It just kind of stays quiet until 1960. The Ottoman Empire is, is dwindling. They're controlling this area right now, but they're dwindling in their power. And it's during World War I, the Great War, because it'll never be another big war. Let's just call it the Great War. And so that's happening. And, and they're seeing, you know what? We're going to win, but the Byzantine, the Ottoman Empire is done. And so the French and the British, they start getting together in 1916 and say, what should we do with the land? Well, we should divide it up between the Arabs and the Jews. And so in 1917, there's the Balfour Declaration, which the English put out saying, that's what's going to happen. We're going to divide the land between the Arabs and the Jews. That was 1917. Fast forward now to 1947. There, there was another great war, World War II. Uh, not great for the Jews, if you didn't know that, read your history. And I, I say that tongue-in-cheek now because growing up, that was well-known. Today, the stats of like 30% of people don't know what the Holocaust is. Another 20 or something percent don't even know if it was real. Terrifying. Terrifying. Well, because of what happened, because of all the atrocities that the Jews experienced, 6 million people died simply because they were Jews in Europe. And by the way, our great, our great nation, Canada, when Jews were coming to Canada to escape the persecution, we sent them back. Because our prime minister at the time said, one Jew is one Jew too many. Horrible. So in 1947, United Nations Resolution 181 is made. It's important. Pay attention. Right? UN Resolution 181 is made where there is the official creation of an Arab and Jewish state or states, two states in what is known as the promised land or Israel 
or at the time was called Palestine because the name, the name remained. And well, the Arabs said no. They declined the option because for them, it was the whole thing or nothing. And so they said no, but in 1948, May 15th, the Jews said yes. And so on May 15th, 1948, around 4 p.m., British lost control, gave up control of the area, and Israel declared itself as a nation. And roughly 4 o'clock p.m. in one second, there was a war. The surrounding nations, the neighbors of Israel, attacked Israel, trying to destroy it right away. Couldn't do it. And that began a number of wars that had been going on. So in 1948 was that first war. 1956, there was a Suez crisis. So the Suez Canal that goes through Egypt, there was another war. 1967, it was a six-day war. I'm told it went six days. Um, 1973 is the Yom Kippur War. Very similar to what we saw on October 7th. There was a holy day where there was a surprise attack. Israel was unprepared for it. And by all rights, Israel should have been annihilated because they were attacked from every side. But in that war, they not only stood the attack, they actually gained more ground. They controlled most of what we saw there uh, in Egypt. They actually returned that land back to Egypt because they had so much coal. They controlled all of Jerusalem and they returned it. That was in 1973. 1982, they started fighting with Lebanon and they had their first war there. In 2006, they had a second war with Lebanon. And then beginning on October 7, 2023, they started, they didn't start the war. They began a war with Hamas because of Hamas's atrocities where they sent men through borders, through hang gliders, some soldiers, some just civilians poured through the border and murdered and raped and beat and stole and kidnapped unsuspecting Jews. That's all since 1948. And that does include the countless skirmishes that aren't even classified as a war. They're just considered another round of fighting. Today, more time is spent on denouncing Israel than any other country in the United Nations. And that, by the way, is despite the numerous humanitarian uh, uh, crises going on, all because of, of despots and dictators and poor government and corruption and so forth. More time is spent on this one little piece of land than anywhere else in the world. One such example was the recent UN resolution where Israel was called to have an unconditional ceasefire. There's made no mention of the fact that there was a ceasefire in place on October 6th, broken by Hamas when they came in to murder and rape and destroy uh, Israel. And then they actually cheered it and said that it was the first of many and they celebrated it. No mention of that is made. Instead, Israel must unconditionally stop the fighting. And that UN resolution was supported by Canada. We turned our back on an ally. We didn't demand or, or acknowledge or even ask Hamas to stop their fighting. All we said is Israel, stop fighting. See, the reality is Hamas, which means violence, by the way, they love death as much as Israel loves life. Their words, not mine. They, they see the Palestinians as martyrs and they celebrate when you're a martyr. And they're willing to expend the lives of those Palestinians if it means killing a Jew. And today they chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Which only means one thing, the extermination and the genocide of the Jews. There's no other way to make that. Currently, this war in Gaza that's going on, the, the world is turning its back on Israel. That UN resolution that demanded Israel enter into an unconditional ceasefire, not supported, or the, the resolution supported by Canada, there's only 10 nations that opposed it. The most important of the 10 was America. But even their support is wavering as they're beginning to, to whisper and make sounds that, you know, Israel, you can't keep doing this. You're going to lose support. And the whole world is going to turn on Israel. But all this is, is prophecy, guys. This is Ezekiel 37. The bones was Israel. And when, when they came together in 1948, the first time, 
Think about it. The first time in 2,500 years, the nation of Israel existed under their own rule. Not since 522 BC, when Judea was captured by the Babylonians. It's a big deal. But there's no life in there. Because when Israel came back as a nation, did they cry out to Messiah Jesus? Yeshua is our Messiah. We've been rescued. They didn't do that. And so they're that body that's been reestablished, but there's no life in them. But one day, that partial hardening is going to be removed. And the Spirit of God is going to return to Israel and their life is going to come into them. Please understand, this does not give Israel a blanket check to, blanket check to be, to be a, a, a despot of themselves, to commit war crimes and, and attack and so forth. That is, that is not what I'm saying in any way. But the reality is this. I don't know what Israel is supposed to do. I mean, I, my own personal opinion, I support what Israel is doing because they got to defend themselves. Because it's as simple as this. If the Palestinians lay down their weapons today, there is peace tomorrow. If Israel lays down his weapons today, there is no Israel tomorrow. It's that simple. It's unfortunate that that's the reality of it, but that's the reality of it. Does that mean I'm against Gaza? Does that mean I'm against Palestinians? No, 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 no. Please understand, I'm praying for them. I'm praying for them the same way I'm praying for Israel. And I'm not praying for peace. I'm praying for salvation. Because what good is it if we bring peace to the Middle East, but we don't bring Jesus? No good. They need Jesus. And so what's happening is amazingly is people across the Muslim world are talking about these dreams they're having where they're encountering Jesus in their dreams. And I'm told that, that almost every Muslim in the Muslim world either has had the dream personally or knows someone who has. There are people who are praying that they would have that dream. God's not done and he's working. But there will be a time where the time of the Gentiles will end. The fullness of the Gentiles will end and that partial hardening will be lifted. And I'm praying that maybe this is it. Maybe what we're seeing right now, I mean, think about it. You and I are living at a time when prophecy may be coming to, to pass. Prophecy that is thousands of years old where Israel turns back to Jesus cries out upon the name of the Lord, just like Abram did all those years ago. And they would be saved. I told you I'd read an Old Testament. Now I want to read a New Testament passage in Romans 11, beginning in verse 23. And again, this whole passage is all about the Jews and the church. And, and so Paul writes, and they also... If they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. He's been talking about this root and this, this olive tree and how you and I were wild branches as Gentiles and we were grafted into this, this olive tree, which is God. But the Jews, because they were rejection, they were removed, but they could be grafted back in if they don't remain in their unbelief, he's saying. For if you and I, if you, if you were cut off from what was by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? There's still a path and hope for, for physical Israel. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise by your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel till the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's why as a church, we don't look down on Israel. We love Israel like we love every other nation. And we invite everyone to be grafted in by faith. And so there's a partial hardening that has come to Israel until it's temporary, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Now, I don't believe that means that every Israelite, every Jew will be saved automatically because they're a Jew, because that's not how it works. I think all here is the same way that John the Baptist was out baptizing and preaching and all of Jerusalem came out to hear him. I don't think it was every Jew, every person in Jerusalem that came out. It was just a large number. But what you're going to see is large number of Jews coming to faith in Christ. And it's starting. 
Because when I was growing up, for Jews, Jesus was like the one thing. Like, like Jewish mothers would tell their boys, listen, you know, hopefully you get a doctor or a lawyer, and, and hopefully you're not a criminal or a drug dealer, but the worst thing you could do, you break your Jewish mother's heart, don't become a Christian. That was the worst thing. And so for, for many Jews growing up, Christianity was, mm-mm. I was going to make a cross to it, but I don't think that's what it is. So maybe star, I don't know. But they just, they didn't want it. But it's starting to change. And Jews today are saying, tell me about this, Jew, this Jesus guy. I don't know who he is. And that partial hardening is starting to be removed. He quotes from the Old Testament, Paul does, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. God hasn't forgotten his promise to Abraham. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Israel has not lost its chosen status. They've rejected Jesus, but there will be a time where it comes back. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of, this, of their disobedience, so they are also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. Aren't you glad that it isn't about what you do in your performance? It's about the mercy of God and the grace of God that you and I have received, and one day, many in Israel will too. And that's my prayer, because I want more people to enter into the kingdom of God. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.